everybody. This is a great full audience. It's always fun to tell tales to full audience. Our first teller coming up is Emily Spaulding. You might not know this. I happen to. Emily went to college on a baton twirling scholarship. How great is that? <laughs> she worked as a cable TV interviewer in New York City where she became a general manager and where she met her husband, Dick. Emily has recently published a memoir about growing up in the South with the working title of Toots. She says that her greatest pleasure is to tell and to hear true tales. Emily has told several good stories on True Tales Radio right here. We welcome her back to tell us another. This one, in honor of Black History Month, is titled A Taste of Freedom. Come on up, Emily. My mother said to me, Toots, I was 12, I want you to go to Montgomery on the bus by yourself and get your retainer fixed at the orthodontist. Yes, ma'am. That was the good thing to say when you were talking to her. And she said, now, I usually take you in the car, but I am going to have a teaching job tomorrow, so I want you to go on the bus, and you'll be just fine. And I said, well, now, how exactly do I know where it is? And she said, oh, well, I've written an address on a piece of paper, and you just ask strangers, and they'll tell you how to get there. Well, Auburn was uh, 2,000 people, and we had two stoplights. And Montgomery, if you maybe remember in your history class, is the capital of Alabama, and it had 100,000 people. But that's later on. And so uh, the next day, she dropped me at the bus station. It was kind of a scuffy building at the, the edge of town. And I went inside, and I bought my round-trip ticket, and I sat down on this kind of scuffy bench. And I looked up. The only decoration in the room was a long strip of flypaper, and it was covered with petrified flies and dirt. <laughs> and I thought, I think I'm going to go wait outside and not get typhoid fever in here. <laughs> so I went out, and I turned to the right, and there was a water fountain. Now, this is a hot, hot day. There are a lot of hot, hot days in Alabama. And it had a sign over it, and it said, White only! Exclamation. So I turned on the faucet, and I took a big gulp of water, and it cooled me all the way down to my toes. Oh, it was so good on a hot day. And then I went around to the back, and there was another water fountain there. And it had a sign that said, colored only. And I thought, I wonder if the water tastes different. <laughs> and then I thought, well, somebody's going to go out and grab me and say, what are you doing? Who are your parents? You can't do that. But I noticed that there was a piece of gum on there that was all dried up. It looked like maybe Moses had chewed it before he went to take, let these people out of Egypt. But I, nothing was going to stop me, so I turned the handle, and I was all ready to have some water, and it didn't work. So the people who had to wait in the back on those benches didn't have any cold water to drink on a hot, hot day. So it was getting to be time for the bus, so I walked all the way around to the front, and there were a lot of white people waiting to get on the bus, and here came the bus. It opened the door, and all the white people got on, and they started sitting at the front, working their way toward the middle. And I got my favorite seat, which is the right front, because you can see everything from there. And then we rode, drove around to the back. It was sort of like a hound dog chasing his tail, and the bus stopped at the back where the water fountain didn't work, and there were colored cleaning women there. And they had two totes. One was had rags in it for cleaning supplies, and the other one was empty. And even I knew that the missus would give them some uh, food to take home to their families and probably some secondhand clothes. So we started off, and we went down the road until we got to a couple of colored gas stations, and there were more cleaning women who got on the bus there. And I really had to laugh because at every gas station in the country, there are always old men leaning up, sleeping against the side of the building. And they always have on a straw hat and overalls and their work boots and their favorite hound dogs are lying sleeping at their feet. And that was true of the two that we stopped at. And after about two hours, we got to the, the city of Montgomery, to the bus station. And... 
we, first of all, the white people get off, and the, they were going to their jobs and to their appointments. And I got off with my envelope with had the address of no directions, but the address there. And then the colored cleaning women got off, and they went to the big houses where they were going to clean. And I took my address, and I went up to people and said, excuse me, but do you y'all know how to get to this address? People were really nice. I had to ask two or three people. And finally I got to the orthodontist, and I went in, and I said, hi, I'm uh, Emily Smith, and uh, I'm here to have my retainer fixed. The woman looked through the book, and she said, well, I don't see an appointment for you. And I said, well, I don't know, but I came two hours on the bus by myself, and I would like to see the orthodontist and see if I can get him to fix my retainer. So she said, well, you just wait, and I don't know what he'll do. She sounded just like my mother when my brother bought snakes in the house. <laughs> and so I sat and waited, and I read the magazines about hunting and fishing and cooking, and my favorite, the Saturday Evening Post. And finally, the orthodontist said, come in. And when I got in there, he said, you tell your mother it's $50 to fix your retainer. And I don't take any charity cases. You got that? I said, yes, sir. So I went back to the hurry back because it was getting late. And the only thing that was going to be worse than having buck teeth like a rabbit was the fact that if my mother had to drive 54 miles to get me back and forth, that would be a real problem. And the bus was just sitting there, and I was the last person to get on. The guy opened the door for me, and he closed it. And there were no seats in the front. So I went, and I sat down next to someone who looked like Mary, who sort of brought us up. She was a, a colored woman as well. And she was old and looked really tired. And I sat down. That was fine with me. And the driver turned around and he said, we've got a problem here. And I said, it's okay. It's fine. Let's just go. I'm, I'm good. And he said, no, there are ordinances. And he went back to the woman and he said, move on back. And so she got up and didn't say anything and walked really slowly back because she was tired and sat on the back bench. The back bench is where you didn't want to sit because it had no cushion. It was just a board, and it was always the last seat that was taken. And then we uh, <clears throat> we went along, and we went to the stopped at the two same gas stations, and then a strange thing happened. The bus pulled off right on the side of the road in the red clay, and a woman would come out, and she'd say, Night, Charlie. That was the name on his badge. And he would say, Night, Maisie. Or something. Nellie would come up, and she'd say, See you tomorrow. And he'd say, See you tomorrow. And there, there it was happening. Was He was stopped at everybody's house. He knew where they were. They knew him. And their houses were kind of hidden behind the bushes. And I thought, oh, that is really good because they'll be a lot safer if their house is hidden. And I had seen people burning crosses in the newsreel before the movies. And I thought, they will really be safe because nobody will know where they are. So as we got closer to Auburn, where I lived, where the first stoplight in Auburn of the two, I said, Charlie, could you let me off? That's my street and I can just walk home. It won't be so far. And he said, I don't think so. He said, when you get in the municipal limits, there are rules. Well, I kind of slumped down in my seat and thought, oh, I am really a second-class citizen here. But as we got almost to the light, the bus slowed down until I thought it had run out of gas. And just then the light changed, and the door opened, and he said, here you go, little lady. He had planned to do that all along. And I got out, and I thought... This is really great because we're a, we're a secret team here. The cleaning woman and Charlie and I, we have a secret, and I kind of felt like we were in this together. And feeling so good, I saw the gas station right there, and I thought, I'm going to go and get in. You may not know about this if you're not from the South. You get an orange crushed drink, and you get a bag of peanuts, salty peanuts, and you pour them in there, and then you put your finger on the top, and you shake it up till it's fizzy. And just as I was about to drink it, I heard this voice. It was my mother. Her voice was coming behind the gas station uh, pumps or something. She said, Toots, you don't do that. That's poor white trash, and we don't do that in our family. But she wasn't there, so... I walked all the way home drinking this drink, 
And I, just as I was about to get to my house, I thought, I don't know what tastes better, the salty or the sweet or the fizzy. I know it's the taste of freedom. <laughs> and then I saw the bush, the pink azalea bush in my yard, and I was home. I do have a postscript. About three years later, in Montgomery, the same place where I was riding the bus, there was a cleaning woman who didn't get up. She said, I'm not tired. I'm tired of giving in. And her name was Rosa Parks. is new to True Tales Radio. Did I pronounce that correctly? All right. He has called Keene, New Hampshire home for 20 years. Chris is a marathoner and a guitarist who loves hiking in the White Mountains. He makes his living as a musician and storyteller, performing primarily in New England as a solo artist. Although Chris now lives in Keene, his story takes place in a more local location at an epic party atop a country hillside in Eppin, New Hampshire, center of the universe, inside an abandoned airplane hangar. I happen to know that hillside and that very airplane hangar. Maybe I wasn't at that epic party on Red Oak Hill, <laughs> but maybe I was. I'm kind of curious to find out. So come on up, Chris, to tell us your story, Blue Fields of Corn. My family is full of musicians. My brother plays the bass guitar, my mom plays the piano, my dad plays the organ, my grandfather was in a band, his father was in a band, so it seemed natural that I would follow in my family's footsteps. When I was 11 years old, I was really lucky when my grandfather put a guitar in my hands. And if there's anything that I learned about being a musician, it's to always work on your craft. Always be practicing, always work on the songs that you're, you're developing, and always create new things all the time. But there's one lesson in particular that I learned on a hillside not too far away from here in Epping, New Hampshire. It's that when opportunity comes, it's way too late to prepare. <laughs> Let me take you back to August 28th, 2015. It was a beautiful summer evening. And I was at my cousin Ben Keeler's house in Epping, New Hampshire. He invited me over to his place to celebrate that full moon in the evening of the 28th of August. He said, Chris, I have something really, really fun planned for us. You gotta tag along. So I went over to his place. A couple of his buddies were there too. They took separate cars and Ben and I hopped in his Jeep. Now, Epping's not exactly a bustling, bustling metropolis. <laughs> it's more like a village with about 8,000 people. So when you're in Epping, New Hampshire, you don't have to drive too far before the roads that are paved turn to dirt. I was sitting there in his Jeep Cherokee. We had two cases of beer in the back, one PBR, one Rolling Rock, light beer. We were going to be drinking the entire night. So we're driving down this road, and we weren't driving for three, four minutes between, before the road all of a sudden turns to dirt. And to my left, acres and acres of corn. To my right, acres and acres of corn. At that point, it seemed very unlikely that anything epic was about to happen. In the windows being completely down in the Jeep, you could slowly smell the sweetness of the lilacs and goldenrod in the air. You could smell ginger root, but you could also smell as you crept higher into the hills, the alluring smell of manure. Just wafts here and there, just enough to accent the entire ride. The sky was a thousand shades of pink and red and crimsons and buttercreams 
It looked like rainbows were infinitely expansive across the sky. We went up this dirt road between two narrow pass cornfields on either side. One minute, two minute, three minute. The dirt road turned to another dirt road. And off the side of that dirt road, another dirt road. Where was he taking me? I had no idea. As we passed the cornfields, I eventually looked to my right and saw several rows of apple trees. And I would later learn of the Baldwin apples and how they were the only fruit that had survived a storm that had passed through this area many years ago. My cousin Ben and I were in this Jeep. We finally get to the top of this hill into this clearing. If you can imagine, cornfields everywhere, everywhere, clearing about the size of a football field. Now, we get there and we park to the side, and there's not really much going on except a couple of sketchy-looking dudes in the corner drinking some Pabst Blue Ribbon. We park on the other side of them. We walk a little bit further, and we see this huge barn. I thought it was a barn, but I took a closer look and realized that it was actually an airplane hangar. This airplane hangar was huge, 40 feet by 100 feet. 50 feet high in the air, you see these expansive timbers, aged timbers just spanning this incredible canopy of space. We're in the middle of this cornfield, underneath this airplane hangar. And what really was the most incredible accent was the stage that was underneath the airplane hangar. A polished stage. And there was a band that was set up on this stage. And they were playing, and it sounded really, really good. Now, Ben and I unloaded our rolling rock, and we unloaded our Pap's Blue Ribbon, and we casually brought it over to the table where everybody was putting their beer. That's where we saw the true selection. We see the IPAs, we see the lagers, we see the light beers, we see the heavy beers, we see the porters, we see a keg being tapped, but there was only three people. <laughs> we were going to have the most epic of times. <laughs> what made the night incredibly memorable for me were all the different accoutrements that were in that cornfield that night. Behind the airplane hangar were these old cars. There were these old Chevys, GMCs, and there was, I think, a Model T car. And all of this rusticity added to the environment and the accent of that night. The band was playing, and they sounded awesome. Now, some of the songs they played were fairly familiar, and it took you back a little bit. I'm going to tell you how it's going to be. You're going to give it your love to me. So many people were there, and the two or three people turned into five or six, and then eight or nine, and then 15 people jumped onto the dance floor and started dancing. As that night progressed, more people came out, and more things started happening. Right behind the airplane hangar next to the several old cars, there was a pit with a bonfire that had just been built. Several people were standing under the bonfire, putting all these old logs onto the flames, and the smoke just rose up to shake hands with a thousand shades of pink in the sky. It was gradually settling down to a deep indigo and purple. In this abysmal sky, you could look out and see all the stars. And the sun was just setting. And on the tops of the fields of corn, you could see all the colors of the sky. The band continued to play. And at the end of the set, a singer came over. Her name was Sarah. She came over to my cousin Ben and I. She said, hey, Ben, who's your friend? I said, oh, this is Chris, and he's my cousin from Keene, New Hampshire. You know, he plays a little bit of guitar, too. I said, Ben, you know, it's, it's okay. You don't need to say anything. Just, it's cool. He said, no, Chris, you know, you, you play. It's all right. You could say some stuff. And she looks right at me. And she said, you want to join me for a set? For at least four beers in, standing next to a bonfire, a stranger come up to me and asked me would I like to join her for a set on the stage. Well, let's take a step back. When opportunity comes, it's way too late to prepare. <laughs> I've been playing for so long, and my grandfather 
had taught me to play. He also taught me a couple of things that I should be mindful of while I'm playing and in the future when I'm playing. One of those things was always carry a guitar pick with you. Some of you in the audience I know play guitar and you brought some instruments with you. Maybe you have some similar philosophy. But that night, I was lucky, lucky to have this thumb pick in my pocket. Compared to a straight pick, a thumb pick just slips right over your thumb and you start playing. Now, as a finger-style finger guitarist, I need this thumb pick to play the guitar. I said to Sarah, I said, let's rock. Follow her up right on stage and we start playing. Now, some of the songs we played were kind of familiar. began to join us on the stage, and the more people started to dance. I hadn't met anybody beside my cousin prior to that night, but when everybody was dancing on the floor, and I was playing with a band who I had just met, a magical moment started to happen between strangers. And we almost felt like we were family, those moments in the cornfield that night. The sun had set, and the full moon was just beginning to rise. And when you're thinking about being in the middle of a cornfield, and that giant big moon just starts to rise, the blues in the sky just become accented everywhere, from the grass that we were walking on, to the stage we were dancing on, to the tops of the corn. Acres and acres and acres. As I looked out into the crowd that night, playing the guitar, looking out into smiling faces and bunches of eyes, I can't help think of the Baldwin apple trees and how nature had hand-selected these specific people to share in the moment that we were creating that night. playing, nobody knew the words to a specific song, but somebody dancing in the crowd had known the words. They started getting up to the band. They came up and joined us on stage. One person singing turned into three person people singing, and then four people singing, so it was by the band playing on stage and four strangers up here singing to all these songs, and we partied the entire night. It was the most incredible experience that I had ever had as far as a musician because you go into a certain situation expecting one thing to happen and something completely different happens. And I start to think about all the things in my life that I learned from when that happens. Anybody in here, if you could think of a situation where you knew how things were going to work out, you knew it in your mind, you played every scenario, then going out, having done it, you find out how wrong you were. We partied until the sun came up. We partied until the sun came up the following morning. And as the steam started rising up from the grass, I looked at my cousin. I said, this was the most epic adventure I ever had. Thank you. Oh. 
It is 7.02 p.m., and you are listening to WSCA LP 106.1 FM, Portsmouth Community Radio in New Hampshire. I'm Amy Antonucci. You are listening to True Tales Radio, and here to introduce our next storyteller, MC Pat Spaulding. I'd like to thank Chris for that story. Knowing that hill and knowing the moon rise and have been on that hill, well, maybe a little bit earlier than your story, sometime around 1970-something. Yeah, um, but yeah, that was a beautiful thing to relive all that. Thank you. (laughs) Next up, we have Christine Kelly. She's a speaker and coach who lives in the Portsmouth area. She creates workshops to help people change their lives. Christine, who has appeared twice before on True Tales Radio, tells us that she loves telling stories to live audiences. Well, isn't that good? Because here we have one. Right here, ready and waiting to hear your story. Tonight, it's about finding her own path for a changing life. Her story is titled, A New Direction. So when I was a little girl, my sister would be playing with her dolls, and I would be making a radio. You know those little kits you could get at Radio Shack where you put the transistors in, and all of a sudden you have sound? That progressed over my life to I became the electronics expert in my family. I installed radios in cars. (laughs) I set up (laughs) stereos. I did all of that stuff, all because I was really curious at how things worked, and I loved to figure it out. In fact, this carried on to my next big thing was all the Apollo rocket ships. I mean, who I grew up when, you know, we reached the moon and that all those Apollo trips. So I put together this whole set and of course in the right time frame and knew exactly where they went and who was on them. Um, I guess you could say I was a little bit of a nerd or a geek, but that's okay. You know, I was just so curious and I wanted to know what was, you know, what was happening and how to figure it out. As that progressed, I got this, um, these two models, the Invisible Man and the Invisible Woman. And what was really cool about them was you could take all the organs out and put them back in. So you could really figure out how people worked, which that was fa- even more fascinating. So that progressed into a career in healthcare again because I was just so curious. I wanted to know what made us work. And after that, I went to school for statistics, which... You know, I guess you could say that's figuring out how things worked or making the story fit how they work, depending on your view. But again, it was just such a curiosity. Like, how could these numbers tell you what was happening? I was fascinated by that. And so then I started careers in consulting and healthcare and financial services and doing all this figuring out until I got hurt one day. And I don't know if it was because of the pain or because of the medication, but I felt like I couldn't figure anything out. And it just, it all stopped. So that person that I used to be, I kept trying to figure out how to get there again. And I I fought and I scraped and I scratched and I did everything I could do to dig my claws in to get back there. But I just couldn't figure it out. So one day, while I was meditating, I was with my little meditation buddy, my little dog Lucy. (laughs) We always meditate together in the morning. And I was sitting there, and this image popped into my head. And it was the past was behind me, and out in the future was a road ahead of me. And when I looked back towards the past, I noticed there were all these bright lights. And then a few years back, it just grew dim. It was almost like it was grayed out. And as I looked forward, it was all in the shadows. And I'm like, well, oh my gosh, what the heck is happening here? Does that mean I don't go forward? But then I noticed this little path going off in the other direction. And as I looked at it, it turned gold and white, and it was the most beautiful color. It was It was just lit almost from within. It was gorgeous. It was so enticing and so inviting, I immediately started to walk down it. And now, I don't know where that path is going to lead me, 
But I do know I'm curious about it, and I know I'll figure it out. Thank you. Thanks, Christine. I like Tinker Toys myself, <laughs> erector sets, yeah. and um, Lincoln Logs. <laughs> now I guess it would have been, um, <laughs> oh dang, I can't think of, anyway, the toys that are little plastic things. Yeah, that little things. Like, like, oh. Lego. Lego, yeah, okay, losing my words. <laughs> John Dover's up next. John grew up in suburban New Jersey in the late 1960s and worked for 30 years as a high school guidance counselor. Please remember those two facts when you listen to his stories tonight. <laughs> he is currently retired and lives with his wife and son in Northampton, New Hampshire. John, who has previously told stories here on True Tales Radio, says this one is about teenage boys having fun, getting it wrong, and then taking the high road. Whatever that's supposed to mean to teenage boys. <clears throat> remember those two facts I'd mentioned? He grew up in suburban New Jersey in the late 60s, then worked for 38 years as a high school guidance counselor. Let's hear what John has learned along the way in his story, Testing Boundaries. Thank you, Pat. So this is uh, the spring of 1967, and I had just graduated from high school. And, um, and like Pat said, it's suburban New Jersey. Uh, my folks had bought into a, um, uh, a summer um, beach club. Um, it was called Copper Springs. This is in the Great Swamp in, um, in New Jersey. And so we would go to Copper Springs uh, every summer. And we got lots of friends there. We were on the swim team. We really got to know people there. And it became a big part of our lives. So one of the first things I noticed um, when we, got, we would get to Copper Springs is that they had a, a cooler there full of soda. But it wasn't the kind of vertical coolers that you see now. It was kind of like a boxy affair. And it was hinged in the back. So you'd lift up, um, the, uh, you'd lift up the lid and look down and you'd see different kinds of soda. And you'd put in your quarter and you'd slide your soda along the channel, and then you'd lift it up once you'd put your money in. And so you had, you had choices there. And, um, and I had this idea, well, suppose you brought a can opener and a straw. Could you like <laughs> open one of these bottles and then just put the straw in and kind of cheat the system and get a free soda? And that, it, I mean, it made sense, but I knew that I would get into trouble if I did that. So I, I didn't do it, but it kind of resonated in the back of my mind and for years. And <laughs> so uh, cut to uh, uh, high school, I'm graduating, and my buddies and I are uh, shooting the fat. And I say, why don't we go to Copper Springs and we can go skinny dipping there, which was something we did. I was a big supporter of that activity. <laughs> and so they were like, yeah, okay, sure, we had nothing better to do. So I didn't tell them about the soda thing, but that was my secret plan. Um, so um, I, now, I couldn't let my folks know about this, so we had to, um, I had this plan that we would, uh, roll the car out backwards out of the driveway so I didn't have to turn the engine on and maybe awaken them. So um, I was there with um, my buddy uh, Smooth uh, and Peter um, and uh, Steve. Um, we were all there. And so we're, they're pushing the car. Um, it's rolling quietly. It's, it was working out really well. And um, my... <laughs> Sister Nancy comes running out, and I'm like, I look at her, and she says, I'm coming with you. And I'm like, this, I don't know if that's a good idea, Nancy. And, but having had a lot of arguments with Nancy in the past that I always lost, I knew that it was pointless. So I said, okay, come on in. So Nancy comes in the car. We roll the car out into the street and then push it 
about half a block to get it away from the house, start the engine up. We're on our way to Copper Springs, okay? So we get to Copper Springs. There's a lot more light on the pond than I would have liked, but that's okay. Um, my friends go to the pond. Um, I go right to the cooler. I remembered uh, the can opener and the straw, and um, I opened the bottle, put the straw in, Soda never tasted so sweet. It was great. It worked like a charm. Um, and then my friends come up from the beach, and they're like, you know, the water's pretty cold. I don't know. And, um, my, and I hear this noise behind me, and my sister Nancy is in the, she's gotten into the concession stand, and she's coming out with, like, bags of popcorn, pretzels, potato chips, all this stuff, which I, that wasn't part of the deal that I knew about. And then we see a cop car drive by on Myersville Road, and we say, we got to move fast. So we all split into the woods, and there's a little woods right uh, near the front entrance to the club. And so we're hiding in there with the uh, mosquitoes and snakes and everything. And the police come roaring down the gravel driveway to the clubhouse. And, um, and I say, we got to go um, to the car right now. So Smooth and I and Nancy, we run to the car. It's about 20 yards up the road on Marsville Road. And we're, all, we're there. I can remember this so clearly. This is a two uh, two-door car, we're all trying to get into the driver's side door. It was like the Three Stooges, you know? We, we couldn't get in. Fi and I'm thinking, how long is this going to go on? Well, finally, someone gets the, the door open, and I get in, um, and uh, Nancy and Smooth get in, and I start up the engine, and of course, the police car comes roaring out of the driveway, out of the club driveway, and I'm like, well, I've got to beat this car. So, I mean, I, 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 there's no other way. So I, I stomp my foot on the pedal. This is a VW bug. Um, and I, I mean, it was like hopeless, but I, I had to do it. I had to try. Uh, so I got about 25 feet, and then um, the police car catches up with us, and, um, you know, license, registration, all that stuff. And uh, he calls in another car, because I get, I mean, he knew that I was trying to get away from him. So we go caravan style to the police station where he's going to call our parents. And the booty is in the back. My, uh, my sister, Nancy, she still has the potato chips and the popcorn and all the stuff. And I'm thinking, oh, we're really going to be in trouble. I mean, we're going to get caught red-handed because we were just thinking that we were going to get caught skinny dipping. But this is much more serious. So... We figure out, if we, as we go around the corner, if we can throw the bags out the window, then the police cars are going to be like this, and we'll be like right that, and, and they won't notice it. So Nancy is throwing the, um, you know, the contraband out the window as we go around these corners on the way to the police station. And, um, and Smooth is saying, this is the stupidest idea you have ever had, which it wasn't. Okay, but it was really lame. I had so I couldn't argue that point. Um, we get to the station, and I'm I'm feeling really scared and really bad, and um, and they they call my parents, and I don't think I had to talk to them, which I was really glad of, um, and they but they have to come into the station, and they couldn't get a hold of Smooth's parents, so my parents come, they pick Smooth up. And Laurie and I drive back in the red VW, and the worst part of it was yet to come. I found out that, uh, of course, Bailey, the owner of the club, who was a fixture there. I mean, you, everybody knew Bailey, and he knew all our names. He's like, we, we had to go and see him the next day and like own what we had done. And so, I mean, I don't even know if I slept that night. I was so embarrassed and humiliated. And we get there, and, and I know that um, Nancy's feeling exactly the same way. And just total humiliation. I mean, it was like going to my own funeral. And, but they, the good news was that Bailey, he, I mean, it was the usual stuff, like, I'm, I'm so disappointed with you. And, you know, why did you do this? And like, I didn't know what to say. I mean, it was just going to be like a fun thing. Um, but um, 
that was such a good experience for me to to have to to feel that guilt and know that I had done something that I shouldn't have done. And I forgot to mention the other two guys. So um, Peter um, and Steve, they run into the woods. They didn't come back with us in the car. And they realized with the cop it was better not to even like attempt to come back with us. So they had a seven-mile walk back um, to town. And Smooth, who was worried about not getting into college because he had already been accepted, he did get into college. And it was an experience I will never forget. Thank you. <laughs> Seems like you've had a lot of those unforgettable experiences, John. I've heard a few more. Next coming up, we have someone who's new to True Tales Radio. He's a local author from Dover, New Hampshire. His novel, Pale Highway, is based on his real-life experience working with Alzheimer's patients in a nursing home a subject that he has written about for various other publications and will tell us more about tonight. His passion for storytelling, prompted by a love of science fiction novels, comic books, and horror movies, began at a very early age and never left him. When not busy writing, Nicholas spends his time reading, traveling to new places, and indulging in a lifelong coffee habit. I understand that habit. Caffeine <laughs> keeps the mind on the move. So let's move on to... Nicholas's story, Past the Horizon Line. Okay, so when you look in the eyes of someone with dementia, what do you see? And it's a complicated question because it's not, they can't communicate the same way as someone without dementia can. So is the person still in there? Are they still able to think the same way they did before? And, you know, my feeling on this is an absolute yes. I say that after working in the Alzheimer's unit of a nursing home for years. And, I mean, there's so many stories I could say from that, so many different amazing people I took care of and worked with that I could talk about for hours. But I knew when I was talking going to do this story tonight that there was one story in particular and one person that I just had to talk about. And the first time I met this particular resident of the nursing home, or saw her anyway... I just saw this very tiny, shaky old woman, almost 100 years old, just pushing herself down the hallway of the nursing home in the wheelchair, just glaring forward with this, these intense eyes. And so I was looking at her, and uh, this person next to me just pointed her out and said, don't come close, don't talk to her, trust me, that woman is pure evil. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm looking and I'm like, I, this is, seems ridiculous to me. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, listen, she is mean, she's bitter, she'll rip your head off. She like sends nurses out of the room crying, just trust me, don't talk to her. Mm. And so I'm like, okay, I gotta meet this person. I mean, <laughs> so I'm looking into her face and she had this amazing face because as she's just stubbornly fighting against like the laws of nature with these shaky hands pushing the wheelchair forward, she had this stubborn, just defiant expression with this kind of fierce dignity on it. And I saw just looking at her very clearly that uh, this is a person who probably fought for every achievement she ever had in life. And now she's in this nursing home with dementia and she's up against the one battle she can't beat, which is a cognitive illness. So I figured, okay, I got to get to know this person. Uh, and that's it. so I went and I approached her and I started talking to her. And day after day, I would give her wheelchair rides around the facility. I would bring her tea. I would help her eat. I would talk to her and that sort of thing. And sure enough, she was, in fact, very mean, bitter, and sarcastic. And <laughs> the first time I actually had a conversation with her, I came up and asked if she'd like a ride on the wheelchair because she has these shaky, you know, I mean, she was struggling with it. And so she just snapped at me like, scram, get out of here. Let someone who knows what they're doing take care of this. So I'm like, okay. And then there was the whole process of helping her get into bed because she would transfer from the wheelchair to bed with a Hoyer, which is a mechanical device that'll lift the person up and put them there. And the process always undid all the blankets and sheets and pillows and stuff. So what would happen is you'd have to spend a half hour pulling the sheet, adjusting the blanket, fixing the pillows, and you'd say, is that okay? And she's like, nope, not good. <laughs> so you would go in and like fix the pillows again, do that. It's like, okay, how's that? Is it comfortable? Not good. <laughs> do it again, not good, not good. It was always just not good, no matter what. And so 
you know, it just it was this way day after day. And I, but I kept talking to her because she was really fascinating, incredibly intelligent. Like insulted me every time I talked to her. But you know. And so one time I just remember coming in though, and I had just started my shift. And one of the things I did always was stop and see all the different residents and talk to them for a minute. And as I came up to her, she was waiting in the front lobby and just suddenly grabbed my hand and was just like, oh boy, you caught me red-handed. Yes, sirree, you got me. And I'm like, I was in disbelief because she started laughing. And I had never heard her laugh before the entire time I had worked with her months and months. And so she then told me this elaborate story about how supposedly her friends drove her up to northern Maine and somehow it forgot her, but she didn't mind because she had jumped out of her wheelchair and run all the way down to New Hampshire, like on, by sheer force of will, which of course didn't happen. I mean, there's no way it was physically capable, but to her it did. And to her, it was a massive victory and achievement. And she wanted to share that with me, which was for her, that was huge to want to share that with someone else. And I remember this other time, maybe a month or two after that, where I would give her rides around the facility on the wheelchair, and we'd stop and talk for a little bit, usually not saying too much. But uh, as we were sitting there, she just kind of looked at me, and she was mostly blind, but she was looking at me and said, you know, thank you for being there for me. And I was in disbelief again. But uh, then she's like, you know, it's good to have a friend. So... As uh, so, I mean, I kept taking care of her and do this, and like eventually, as the years went by, the uh, the decline set in, because obviously with dementia, that's what happens: you decline, you lose capabilities, you lose that sort of thing. And so she lost the ability to communicate, which meant there weren't many be bitter, sarcastic comments coming out anymore because you just couldn't talk. She got locked up inside herself, unable to move for the most part, constantly in pain, couldn't talk, any of this stuff. But looking into her eyes, I saw that the same person was still in there. And I remember the uh, last time I saw her, which I didn't know was going to be the last time, I remember helping her get into bed again with the Hoyer and adjusting the blankets and sheets. And this point, because she couldn't talk, she couldn't do much in the way of correcting it or saying it wasn't good or any of that. But I did it anyway because I remembered what she liked. So I'm adjusting, pulling the sheets, putting the pillows there. And I tried every time. And I'm just like, so is that comfortable? Is it good? And she said, pretty good. And that was the first time she'd spoken in months. Ended up that it was the last time I ever heard her speak, because uh, after that, I wasn't there on the shift where she died. It happened some weeks after that. I just wasn't there that day. It wasn't my shift. But what I remember, I, I just felt intensely guilty about this, because I felt like I should have been there. I should have been able to help somehow. But thinking about it more, I reconciled with this by realizing that for all intents and purposes, I was there. Because in the last few years of her life, in that kind of final frontier that was there, I always thought of her as a friend. I never thought of her as someone I was just taking care of. It was a genuine friend, a true friendship. And I never looked into her eyes and saw her as anything less than that. And knowing that, knowing that I always saw her for the intelligent, witty, sarcastic, stubborn, and strong person she was, I hope that maybe, just maybe, I was able to be there for her and maybe make those last few years just a little bit less lonely. And I know that no matter what, I'll always remember her. Thank you. Thank you, Nicholas. Indeed, it is good to have a friend. It's even pretty good to have a friend. <laughs> Craig Worth is a professional musician and songwriter who hails from Newmarket, New Hampshire, and has traveled to many parts of the world thanks to music. He is now working on becoming an interfaith chaplain and enjoys <laughs> croconoil league. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's got to be a dessert, no? Yeah, croconoil. 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 Which I, he tells me is some sort of game they play in Canada. Anybody else know about this? <laughs> he also enjoys hospice work, teaching classes at Kremple's Center, where he works and plays with great people who are survivors of traumatic brain injury. 
Craig shares a wondrous life with his saintly and brilliant wife, Liz. Did she write this? It's true. It is true. I know, Liz. This is true. <laughs> his songwriting son, Ben, therapeutic dog, Sadie, and diminutive cat, Mika. The title of Craig's story tonight is The Light Inside is Always On. Thank you. Thank you, Pat. Jeez, I, judging from that, that little bio, I want to get to know me. That's pretty, it's pretty <laughs> impressive. Um, no, it's funny to hear what things you, we put down in those. The light inside is always on. Um, I'm going to tell a couple stories of my encounters with light. It's a little bit loaded. I'm a little self-conscious because you just heard that I'm a chaplaincy student. I'm going to talk about seeing the light and, and you I don't want you to brace yourselves for a big preaching episode. I'm, I'm not here to um, tell you where to find light or whether light has a capital L or a lowercase l. Um, but I see it everywhere, and I have since I was a little boy. Um, it's in you. It's in me. I didn't always call it that. Uh, my focus on light, well, one aspect of it um, that got me thinking about it in recent years, I happened to be in Australia and, um, for some work. And on a day off, I was at the National Gallery in Canberra, the capital. And I love art museums. Um, I don't know a lot. I don't have, I'm not an informed person about art. I'm not educated about um, the history of it or about the biographies of artists. But I love looking at it. And I love looking at it closely and learning just from looking. And one thing I noticed in this gallery, I was, I was in a section of portraits from throughout different ages. And, and I noticed faces that were particularly vibrant and looked like they were about to talk to me. Might be a little girl from the 1600s or um, a woman sitting at a table and, um, or a gentleman with... Uh, with a, a mandolin in his hands. But I thought, what is it about, what is this artist doing to, to make me think that that person, like I want to get to know them, that they have a story to tell me. And I started getting up close. Again, I have, I'm not a student of art. I didn't learn this. Um, a lot of people may have discovered this well before me, you folks. But um, I would go up to the paintings and I'd look at the eyeballs. Some of them, in some art, the eyes didn't, I didn't feel it. It looked like a painting. It looked like a two-dimensional representation of some human being. But some of them, the ones that looked really alive, I wanted to know, what is it? What's that brilliant person doing to make that look so real? And I started seeing little dots, little white dots. Check, check it out. If you haven't already done this, look at some painting that really compels you and looks lifelike to you. And look at the eyes and see Almost always, there'll be just a little white dot in each eyeball. It's genius! <laughs> it's, it's, it's simple genius. Um, and that, uh, that, reminded, that reminded me that I've been looking for the light in eyes for my whole lifetime. And in the looking, I almost always run into it. Here are a couple stories about uh, where I found it. Um, back in the 1980s, I worked for a social service agency. I was an outreach person. And I would be given a name of someone who was usually in a rural um, and kind of isolated area. And that's all I would have is their name. But I, my mission was to go introduce myself and to see if they needed anything. Uh, it might, might be a nutrition, uh, some kind of uh, food program, or some home insulation or some health services and I could help connect them to those those resources most often free well I was given the name of this let's call this man um, uh, Arthur uh, some of the names in my story will be changed to protect the illuminated just so you know so <laughs> Arthur was out in his garden when I pulled up and uh, he was working away, quite frail, but, but very intent on tending to his Gerber daisies. Or, I'm just, I made that up. I don't remember what they were, but I think they, were, they were looked like something like that. And um, I said hello and introduced myself and told him why I was there. And he just quickly said, come in. And he turned his back on me and went 
to his door and went up in and put his hand on the screen door and pulled it open and went inside. And it was all black on the other side of that screen door. Um, that didn't particularly alarm me. I'd been doing this a long time, but it was just, it was surprisingly dark in there. So I followed him in and I could see why it was dark because right inside the door, the entire corridor was lined with boxes that went from the floor to just about packed tight to the ceiling on both sides, such that I had to turn sideways and scooch along to, to walk sideways to go through the corridor of his home, which was filled with stacks of newspapers and, and these boxes and many other things. And at the end of the corridor was a little round table with, um, I remember, an ivy, an ivy decoration pattern on the top in green and cream colored. And there were two red chairs with kind of um, puffy um, vinyl cushions to them. And he indicated that I could sit at one of them. And there, were, there was a bunch of other stuff that you wouldn't find. This was the kitchen area, but it had all kinds of elements of someone's living room and maybe even a couple pieces of a bedroom in there. It was all a, a mishmash of things. Um, and I just started up the conversation, which was my, my role and also something I'm inclined to do, is to, to get to know someone a little bit and to have them trust me enough to want to tell me what they need. That was my goal. And I asked him about his history, and he, he told me some about where he came from, where he grew up. I can't take that right now. I'm on the radio. Um, I, I asked him uh, where he grew up and what he liked to do. And he said, well, I used to like to sing. I said, oh, me too. I, I, I like to sing a lot. What sorts of things do you sing? And I expected he might talk about Hank Williams songs or whatever it might be. And he said, opera. I like to sing opera. And I said, wow, that's quite a... That's quite a, I didn't know what to call it, because I, I really didn't, I didn't know anything about opera, but I knew it was fancy stuff. So, so I, I might have said something clever like, that's fancy, Arthur. Um, well, he, uh, he got up, and he went to another room. He must have sidestepped into another dimension of his, of his home, and he came back with an LP record. And he lifted the lid of a turntable that was on this kitchen counter area with two, two small speakers. And he put the record on, and he moved the needle over, and he started playing a piece. And it was this beautiful baritone voice. It's kind of a scratchy, oldish record, and popping here and there. But this baritone voice came on, and it was, it was quite lovely. And then he started singing. He started singing the same melody and the same words in the same voice. And he, um, I'm, I was, it was surreal in a way. I didn't, I wasn't expecting it. After a short while, he started um, choking a bit um, and his eyes got very wet and he stopped singing. And the piece finished out and then the needle uh, returned to its home base. And then I didn't know, really know what to say. It was, I, didn't, I didn't know what the story was, but he told me that that recording was him. That was him on stage in New York City. And what I heard was like an exact replication of the record live at the table. What he heard was what was missing. All he was hearing was what wasn't there, what he didn't have anymore. He was close to 80 years old at this time. But in the time he was singing, I saw, I saw his light. Not that it wasn't shining all along in some way, but I really could see it uh, in, in his passion of reconnection. In his, his few moments before he noticed how much was gone, um, I think he was seeing himself there. Um, that's one. There's Arthur. Uh, another is, uh, well, it happened on a Valentine's Day. On a Valentine's Day, I, I, um, I spent time appropriately with my wife in the morning, um, and then I went to see three other women. <laughs> the, the sum of their ages was 100, and, no, sorry, 312. <laughs> 312. 
And for uh, one of them, I asked about her name, and she was sitting alone, and I went over to, to say hello, and I made a kind of a silly mistake in hindsight. I, sh I should know better, but I got a little too close. She was kind of sort of staring forward, and I got a bit too close, and I, at the same time I said, hi, I put my hand on her shoulder, and she sprang backwards, and her mouth opened, her eyes went wide, and I thought I killed her. I thought that I really thought there'd be a headline in the in the newspaper: "Do-gooder kills 105-year-old woman." It was. I was terrified. I was terrified. But she burst into a grin. I could tell um, that Nicholas, your story reminded me a lot of this because. Uh, she spoke in single words, and I didn't always understand the context, but I know they had meaning for her. But when I asked, I said, I'm here to, to visit today. Um, is that okay with you? And her hand went very purposefully and with authority over to my hand. She raised it up at about a 30-degree angle up in the air, held it above, and shook it back and forth and danced with me and said, Yes! Yes! <laughs> with a big grin on her face. And then, I feel it's self-serving to tell you this, but I, well, I'm going to tell it. Then she put her hands down on the table. She took her open-palmed hand and moved it toward the top of my head. I'm going to remove my cap. This is my special head here. It's, kind of <laughs> it's rather, a lot of light shines off my head. And her hand reached over. She put it on the top of my head, and she said, Good. And I almost wept for a long time. I certainly got, uh, got misty over it. Um, there are so many. Oh, I will, let me quickly put in one more because it's a very different uh, sort of story. I was uh, traveling on the road, and um, I traveled a lot for music for a number of years and still do on occasion. But I was one of, the, one of these long 10-hour drives. The glamour, you know, there's the glamour of the stage for about 90 minutes or 120 minutes. And then there's everything you do to get there and all the, the real ugly stuff and the, the exhausting stuff and the stuff that spends all the pennies that you made while you were on stage. So. But I was driving, I was about a 10-hour drive and I was driving across the state of New York. And I stop at those rest areas and I set all my big diet and health plans aside and I go in. <laughs> And I get some cheesy, greasy thing. I'm in a hurry. I use the restroom, and I usually want to make my way back home. Well, on this particular one, I got out of my car. I really have very little time. I'm going to the main doors of that rest stop. And there's a bunch of young men who are in front of me. And they're kind of, they're joking around, pushing each other, talking loudly. Their pants are hanging down way lower than mine on most days, anyway. and I'm instantly not wanting to get too close to them. I can't tell you all the reasons why. I don't want to think about all the reasons why, but they're having an energy that I don't feel a part of, and I don't want to get in the sphere of for whatever reason, and I'm kind of slowing down a little bit. I, want, I need to get in there. I need to hit the restroom. It had been too many hours, and I needed to get some greasy food and get going. Well, they were taking their time, but I'm slowing down and waiting for them. Come on, guys, get in there and do your stuff. Let me get to what I need to do. Finally, they're going through the doorway, still joking and yelling and laughing and such. And the last one stops in the doorway. And I'm going, oh, man. All right. So I just keep, I'm walking in. And as I get closer, he's not moving. And he's just about blocking the doorway. And then as I get within five feet of the doorway, he holds open the door and he turns to me and says, there you go, sir. <laughs> and I swallow whatever it is I have to swallow and I say, thank you, sir. And I walk past him. Aww. There's the light. <laughs> um, I, I'm finding that I see it 
just about everywhere I look for it. And uh, I feel like I'm a bit of a light hunter. But it's not, it's not very hard to find, the, to find the gold with this stuff. This is a very tiny... a tiny what? You think I would finish that sentence, wouldn't you? This is a very tiny, very tiny song, just a few lines that relates to that. The light inside is always on, though it's not always showing. Sometimes it seems the fire's gone, yet through the lies of everyone. The light is always flowing That's it. Thank you for your kind attention. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much to tonight's wonderful storytellers and also to our excellent audience here in the studio. Yeah. Yay. Yay. <laughs> another great night here. Thank you.